Our speaker this hour is Brother Arian Gallagher. He attends the South Haven Church of Christ and works at the Gospel Broadcasting Network. After graduating college with a degree in biology, Aaron worked in the laboratory automation industry for 10 years. Before joining GBN in 2018, he's married to his favorite Bible study partner and his best friend, Jamie Gallagher. They have one daughter, Evelyn Page Gallagher. Beyond that, I can tell you that Aaron is one who, the reason he's at the Gospel Broadcasting Network is because they realized the talents that he had and how he used them for the Lord. A lot of us are involved in technology in our ministry right now because of the pandemic, but Aaron was involved with it long before he was forced to be because he realized what a mission field was out there. And it says a lot about not only his intelligence and the, that kind of ability that God has given him, but also the heart that he has to not only serve God, but also to reach out and to teach the lost. And I don't know how many times during the week my Facebook uh, board comes up with Aaron asking, all right, who, who is in wherever it is because I've got someone I've been studying and they want to be baptized. And that's the evangelistic heart that he has. I, I've been able to sit in with him as we've been students together in master's classes. Uh, his podcast is one that I listen to uh, every time a new episode comes out. I just appreciate him and his heart and the kind of man for God that he is. And one of the things that I would recommend if you're not listening to his podcast to do so. Um, it's my three sons, one of their, uh, all of their favorite uh, podcasts that they listen to. And so that especially makes me have a great love for him that uh, he's having such an influence on my sons to lead them to the Lord. So uh, give your attention to him, and I know we'll be blessed this hour. So preach the word to us, brother. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. It's, uh, I joked with Denny. I said this is the first time I spoke on the lectureship. I'm not quite sure if you have confidence in me to give me this topic or if this is a form of hazing. You know, the first time I speak, it's like, let's give this guy this topic. But I'm thankful to be here and have this opportunity uh, to talk to you all. It's especially, uh, I guess, uh, rewarding for me because of the way Bear Valley has helped uh, with the work at GBN. At GBN, we do a lot of work on social media trying to reach out to people around the world. And a lot of times we'll have people that will watch the content and say, I want to be baptized or I want to study, but I'm in Indonesia, right? You know how many people I know in Indonesia? Not very many. But I know that Bear Valley has schools, and so I'll, I'll text Keith, and I'll say, hey, who do you guys have in this country? And he'll say, email this person. And one example specifically, there was a man named Christian in, in uh, Bandung, Indonesia. And within about, I don't know, 24 to 36 hours, Keith had connected me with somebody there who had connected a man named Deddy, and Deddy was having a Bible study with Christian, and he was baptized. So Bear Valley is, is really someone that GBN, we work a lot together in that. Uh, my experience with Bear Valley, I'll tell this story quickly. Uh, Mike Reese, I grew up going to church camp where Mike uh, was the director of the camp. And so I was a camper, and then I got old enough, I aged out, became staff. And one morning we were sitting at breakfast, and we were looking at all the kids, and Mike said, wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if we did this in Africa? And I said, I would love to do it. So we go to Africa, I don't know, a year later maybe, Mike, and uh, we're there and we're doing some work, and he says, you know, he's there for Bear Valley, and I thought, what's well, Bear Valley? It sounds like, I guess, a valley that's got a lot of black bears or a hunting resort or maybe a ski resort, right? I didn't know what Bear Valley was, but in the course of that, we went on a campaign, and I went door knocking with uh, some, some graduates from Arusha and then some graduates and current students from Bear Valley, and I want to tell you this story because it's going to segue into the, the first part of the lesson and that is, I was about 28 at the time, right? 
I'm 28. I've got a four-year college degree in biology. I thought I was pretty smart. I grew up in the Lord's Church, if you know what I mean by that. My dad was an elder, and so I had some Bible knowledge, and I really thought that I had pretty good Bible knowledge. And so we're, we're door-knocking, and we go to the first uh, mud hut, and we knock on the door, and the two uh, African brethren say, hey, brother, can we handle this Bible study? And I said, sure, sure. And, you know, I wasn't like, oh, of course. I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking this 28-year-old American. I think I'm so smart, right? Americans, we think we're pretty smart. And so I said, yeah, you guys go ahead and, and lead this Bible study. And so I'm sitting there, and they start into the scriptures. And if anyone's been over there, you worked with these people from these extension schools and people that are very evangelistic, you know they're very good at what? Personal evangelism. And so they start going through the scriptures, and I'm sitting there, and my excitement to lead the next Bible study immediately turns into terror. Because I hear how eloquent they are, and they're moving from Scripture to Scripture, and they're asking questions and response. It's not this, uh, this really stale you know, list of verses. And I immediately become terrified because I know I don't want them to hear me lead a Bible study. Because at the age of 28, I had had very few Bible studies, and I wasn't very good at it, to be honest with you. And so we left there, and we go to the next house, and they say, Brother Aaron, you can lead the Bible study at this one. And I said, you guys are doing fantastic. You just keep doing it, you know. <laughs> And so that whole time, I chipped in a little bit, added some verses, but for the, for the most part, they led it. And you know what that did? It really opened my eyes and told me that I don't know as much as I think I know. You know what I was? Those of you that know me, you can probably say this. If you don't know, I was, starts with an A and ends in regent, arrogant. I was arrogant. I really was. And so there are some problems in the Corinthian church, and sometimes, if we're honest, most of us have probably, at least I'll admit it, I've had a lot of times in my life where I was more arrogant than I should have been, right? I thought that I knew more than I did. And this is one of the problems they had in the Corinthian church. They were puffed up. In fact, if you look up this word in the New Testament, I think it's used about seven times. Do you know how many times it's used just in the Corinthian letter? Six of those seven times. The only other time it's used is in Colossians 2.18, I believe it is, where it talks about people who were puffed up in their fleshly mind. They were, they were vain. They were puffed up because they thought that they were very knowledgeable, right? Is pride in the Bible, is that a dangerous thing? You think in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, uh, God talks about there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. And in a sense, you can think, if I asked you to make a sin meter, right? If we had a sin meter, what would we put at the top? Murder? Adultery, all, all, maybe molestation or rape, all these horrible, heinous sins, right? And they are. You know what's interesting? Remember the first thing that God puts on that list? A proud what? A proud look. You know, it's this idea of looking down at somebody else. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, it talks about qualifications for an elder, a pastor, right? And it says in verse 6 that he should not be a new convert, newly planted, like a, a new plant you just plant in the ground. He shouldn't be a new convert. Why? Because he might be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of who? The devil. Now, that word for puffed up is different than 1 Corinthians, but it's still this idea of pride, right? Pride's a big deal. Luke 18, the man who looks over at this person who's penitent, he's a Pharisee, and he says, man, I'm thankful I'm not like that other guy, right? Arrogance is a big deal to God, and it's a big deal in all of Scripture, really. And so the Corinthians had that issue. And so what is Paul's goal? You've heard this over and over, and what are the three keys to learning? Repetition, repetition, repetition you're going to see that Paul is calling uh, for these people. He wants unity for these people that he loved. If you have your Bibles in 1 Corinthians, you know, go to verse, uh, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul loves these people. You know, sometimes we have this tendency, right, that we see somebody doing something and we really don't have that good of a relationship with them, but what will we do? We'll fire off a message, right? 
will fire off something instead of really trying to engage in a relationship with them. Now, listen to what Paul said in verse 14 of chapter 4. I do not write these things to shame you. Now, in a sense, was he sort of trying to shame them in some of their behavior? There's something in Scripture called elliptical statement, right? Uh, I think of 1 Timothy 5.23, where it says, uh, Drink no longer water for your stomach's sake. But take a little wine for your stomach's sake, right? Drink no longer water. Well, do you know what I drank a lot of at the hotel room last night? Water. Was that sinful? No, because an elliptical statement is saying, drink no longer water, what? Only. It's implied, right? So I think in this case, uh, 1 Peter 3.3, 3, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Do not let it be outward. Well, obviously, we want to wear some outward adornments, right? I hope so, right? I like all of you, but I'm glad that you have your outward adornments on, Okay. So it's an elliptical statement. So I think he's saying, I do not write these things only to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. And then he goes on to talk about how he's basically their father in the faith, right? These are not people that Paul did not know. They're not people that he did not love. And yet he's willing to call them out on their arrogance. Why? Because he wants unity for those that he loved, and he knows that's difficult with prideful people. If anyone's ever worked with a prideful person or known one, I've been one, and sometimes I probably still am, is it easy to get a prideful person to go along with what you're trying to work with them on? No, they won't give you an inch, right? And so Paul understands if he wants unity, what does he have to break down first? He has to get rid of this pride. And so what is his solution? Number one, humility. If you want to cure somebody of arrogance, they have to be humble. And so there's different ways he does this throughout the letter. In chapter one, he talks about their calling. And then in chapter six, he talks about their new identity. He says, you used to be all these things, all these awful sins, right? And then he says, but you were what? Washed in the blood of Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were set apart for some new service for God, and you were justified just as if you'd never sinned, right? All of us got a past. People that, have, that I know for the last few years, I, you don't know about the past before I came to GBN, right? I was unfaithful to the Lord's church for a long time. We all have pasts, but now in Christ we have what? We've got a new identity, all right? So, we're going to talk today about God's divine order. First, I want to ask you, who's the authority? If there is a divine order on this earth, who's got the authority to make one? Maybe the one who spoke it into existence, right? It, I always like to think about this idea, if you don't like something the Bible says, well, you don't have to follow it when you speak your own, existence, uh, your own universe into existence, right? God's got the authority. And those that also have the authority are those who uh, are his spokespeople. They have the credentials. Throughout this letter, Paul identifies that he's got the authority to teach these people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of who? Jesus Christ, through the will of who? God. Who called Paul to be an apostle? God did, right? Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to go beyond what is written. Go to chapter 14. 14, 36, and 37. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet... Or a spiritual person, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Right? Paul was a spokesperson. Paul had the authority to speak for God. You know, in our world today, what, what's the authority to a lot of people? Social media, right? Is it social? Maybe a social media influencer. If you're on Instagram, you follow somebody, and this person's got 
500,000 followers and they say this, so that must be the truth, right? Maybe it's a, a popular news outlet, right? Maybe it's some other form of, of media. Maybe it's your, the people that you work with, right? Are they the authority? No. God's the authority, right? And so when we look at these things, we need to realize that God uh, is the one. And don't expect the world to like or understand what God says at all times. Go to 2 Corinthians really quickly. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, the Bible says that if uh, all men speak good of you, that that's really good, right? Because that's what they did to the prophets. No. It says, woe to you when all men speak what? Good of you, for so did their, the fathers did to the what? False prophets, right? Jesus was the perfect preacher, and they did what to him? They crucified him. Don't be surprised whenever you go out and preach, and somebody hears you preach, and they don't like it. If they're an unspiritual person, they don't like God's word, right? We should, we should be used to that, right? I don't know if any of you all, anyone know what Candle Day is? Bath and Body Works Candle Day, right? Okay, my wife loves candles. That's like her number one favorite thing, right? And so this passage, we talk about this passage a lot. Whenever we're talking with somebody and we say something that the Bible says and they don't like it, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Go to verse, let's start in verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So think about this, this smell, okay? This is what the, the Bible says. Verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. So those who are being saved, how, how does God's word, how do spiritual people smell? Good, right? Smells like one of those good candles, okay? My wife likes anthropology candles, right? I don't know if this is relating with anybody, but I, it relates for me, so I'm going with it. Bath and body candles, all right? Bath and body works. They got candle day where you can buy like 10 candles for, I don't know, five bucks a piece, right? My wife loves candles. Whenever you're a spiritual person, you smell good to those people who love God's word, right? Look at the next part, though. To those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, here's the contrast, to those who are perishing, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. The other, the aroma of life leading to life. So if you're a spiritual person and you go out and share what God's word, specifically in our culture, what we're talking about today, God's divine order, which we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is what? God, Christ, man, woman. And that is super popular today, right? It's, I mean, it's ridiculous. There are even people in the religious world. They're not members of the church. So when I go out and talk, and I'll talk to them through the social media outlets that we have, and they are like, I cannot believe that that's what you believe, right? You know why I believe it? What says it? Scripture says it. God says it, right? When I create my own universe, I'll start making the rules, okay? So whenever we go out into the world, just remember, people aren't going to like it. Sometimes you're going to share God's word with people that maybe even claim to be religious, and you know what you're going to smell like to them? Something dead. You know what that smell smells like when you're driving down the road and you, you got your window cracked or maybe it's just coming through your air. You can smell something dead, right? Don't be surprised when you share God's word and people react that way. So let's go ahead and try and get into the text. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, we're going to try to look at it in three uh, parts. The first part, what was the issue in Corinth, okay? What's specifically the issue being addressed? Number two, what's the principle behind the issue? Because you know the Bible is a book of principles, right? And then the third, what's the application today? What is something that we need to take from this and maybe something that uh, will help us in our day-to-day -day life? So in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you've probably heard this before, but why are we starting in verse 2? Okay, this has two sections in the chapter, 11, 2 through 16, and then 17 through 34. Okay? Um, in 17 through 34, it starts talking about the Lord's Supper, some abuses of it. But in 2 through 16, we're going to be talking about this God's divine order. Why, why not verse 1? Okay. 
let's just, you may already know this, but for someone watching, let's talk about this. Um, the book of uh, Corinthians, was it originally divided up into chapters and verses? No, right? If you go back and look through history, uh, in the fourth century, there were some uh, smaller divisions in Codex Vaticanus, which is one of the earlier big codexes, okay, manuscripts. Then in the fifth century, you had uh, Jerome, who started to make some more divisions. They weren't even chapters yet, okay? You've got to go all the way to the 1200s, when a man named Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, he started to add chapters, okay? That's 1200. You keep going forward uh, into the 1500s. In the 1500s, you had a guy who started putting verse divisions in his own Greek New Testament. Then he put them into his copy, I think, of the Latin Vulgate. And then, about, uh, then he started putting it in, in English, and I think it was maybe 1550, 1560, when the very first English translation with chapters and verses came out. And it was, I believe, the Geneva Bible, right? So 1550, that's how many years you can be, uh, we don't have to use perfect numbers, round numbers, from the first century. That's what, 1,500 years from the time this was written, right? So it's been, what, 460, 461 since then? Which means for, let's see the percentages. Since the first century, what percentage of the time have they had chapters and verses? Like the last 25%? The first 1,500 years, they didn't have it, right? So how would somebody originally have looked at this text, okay? I I like this quote by David Black, David uh, Allen A. Black. I don't know if it's Allen, maybe. He said this, Above all, never make a decision on the basis of what you would like the text to say. That's a temptation sometimes, isn't it? Well, it'd be really easy if the text said this, right? But don't make a decision on what you'd like the text to say. Seek to be faithful to the way that the Holy Spirit structured the original text right? There's a purpose. And so we're going to look at this. I talk about the structure. That's the reason I like that quote is because uh, back then they didn't have, uh, they didn't have chapters and verses. Uh, you've heard this from Denny and Dan and those guys before. They didn't have bold. They didn't have underline. That's why they had petition verbs like 110 and 4, uh, chapter 4, 14 through 16, right? Because they couldn't bold or underline. They couldn't do capitals because what? Dave knows this. The early uncials were what? All capital letters, right? They didn't have exclamation points because they didn't have what? punctuation, right? So they had to have a way to convey ideas. And so one of the the methods of Greco-Roman rhetoric was called uh, chiasm or chiastic structure, okay? Uh, It comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X, okay? So you've got half of the X here. And and all this is, is it's showing you this uh, progression, okay? This is an example in Psalm 110, okay? Um, There's lots of other passages I've seen uh, since I discovered this. It's really been I don't want to say distracting for me, but every text I look at, I'm like, wait a minute, I want to di- try to diagram this. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's an example in Psalm 110. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, interestingly, you know what we sort of see? We sort of see that same uh, structure. So we're going to go through the text here in, in a minute, verse by verse. But starting, uh, you have this, I'll just go through and show it to you. You've got this building, um, this building uh, triangle, sideways triangle, the chiasm, of these ideas. And now in the chiasm, the central idea or the main point is normally the verse that's in the middle, which when we get to the verse that's in the middle, you're going to notice this makes this text even easier to understand, right? That's why I said I think Denny was hazing me when he gave me this topic. Look at verse 10. The woman ought to have authority. Now some of your translations may have, like my New King James, a symbol of, but it's in italics, which means what? not in the original text, right? Added by the translators to help you understand it, okay? Woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Now, what in the world does that mean? We're going to get there. We're going to take some stabs at it, and uh, 
I have been wrong before on certain things. You can ask my wife, right? Or Steve, he works with me. I have been wrong before, but I'm going to do my best uh, to show you what I believe the text is trying to bring out. And uh, we have some recommended resources. We've also got, uh, I think the manuscript I turned to Denny was a little long. I said, uh, Denny, now I know you said 8 to 12 pages, but I'm at 20, and I'm trying to cut stuff out. He said, don't cut it out. Just send it. I said, okay. So there's a lot of material in the book um, that we're not going to have time to cover today, but uh, we're going to try to work our way through the text. So starting uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2, this is what the issue in Corinth was, right? We're going to go through and see God has an established order in verse 3, okay? This uh, issue of headship, which is one of our key words, um, I think the word woman is 16 times, man is 14 times, and this idea of headship is nine times, okay? So he's going to talk about God's established order, and he's going to have this discussion of headship. And whenever he's going to have this play on words, because he says, hey, when you don't cover this, your physical head, it brings honor or dishonor to your spiritual head. So this sort of play on words. And then we're going to look at this symbol of modesty. Now, Denny is speaking in the next hour about what the head covering was. So um, we're just going to assume, at least hang out for this one and the next one, and look at, let Denny explain it. But we're going to assume that the head covering was something that was, was cultural. Okay? Denny will explain why in his. But uh, Philo is a writer, just one primary resource, that talked about how the, the veil or the head covering was a symbol, uh, symbol of modesty in that culture. Okay? Then uh, we're going to look at how man and woman complement each other. And then you get to verse 10, because of the angels. All right? So then, of course, the, the text works its way back down to verse 16, and we'll look at a few of those verses. So while we're here, let's go ahead and, and look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll turn back there, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. So 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Paul's writing, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he praises them. Okay, Two things. One for remembering him. Uh, remembering him in what? I mean, they, they just got done, what, writing him a letter, asking him a lot of these questions, okay? Maybe that's what it's referencing. And then he says, you keep the traditions just as I have delivered them uh, to you. You know from your study of the New Testament, there's what kind of traditions? Good traditions and what? Bad traditions. Matthew 15, 6 through 9, he talks about those bad traditions that the Pharisees had made up themselves, and they were basically saying, hey, you need to, you need to follow these traditions, but ignore God's tradition, Right? Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, you've got the good traditions that uh, Paul says were delivered by us through word or epistle. Okay? So that's the type of tradition he's talking about here. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So he starts off with this super popular cultural in our day, 2021 hierarchy, right? God, Christ, man, woman. Okay? Now, before we move further, let's say this. Just because there's a hierarchy, does that uh, imply a difference in value? No. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 says that Jesus uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to held on to, but he did what? He let go of it. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant, right? And he went even to the point of death, not just death, death on the cross. Now, was Jesus any less uh, valuable or important than God the Father? No, but he did what? He submitted, he took a subservient role to honor God, the Father, to honor that plan to save mankind, right? So when we go through this, this doesn't mean that man's more valuable than, than woman. It means that we have complementary roles, and Paul's actually going to talk about that as we go through the text. Okay, so we've got God, Christ, man, woman. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. All right, this is where the play on words starts. 
Every man praying or prophesying having his physical head covered, okay? Physical head covered dishonors his what? His physical head? His spiritual head. Who is the spiritual head of man? It's Christ, right? Now why? Then he's probably going, going to go into more detail. Um, but in Corinth, women culturally covered their, their heads, right? They covered their heads with what then he's going to elaborate here on the next hour, okay? And to not cover your head was a symbol of disgrace. Let's, let's continue in, in the verse. So a man would not cover his head. It's a symbol maybe of submission. A man's not going to show submission in Corinth. That's, that's weird in their culture, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 5, but every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, her physical head uncovered, dishonors her what? Spiritual head, which would be who? The man, right? And you say, is this just restricted to wives? Uh, if my wife in, in first century Corinth did this, it would dishonor me, right? But that, I don't think necessarily means it has to be married women, right? Because if my sister was going around doing something that was bringing reproach on her, that would also influence what? The, her father, maybe the brothers, maybe the church, right? So I think this is applying not only to just married women, but to, to all Christians, men and women in the first century in Corinth. So that woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, because in that culture, that was seen as what? Rebellious, very rebellious. And then listen to this next part. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Uh, let's go ahead and read verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So he says, look, if she's going to uncover her head, it's one and the same as if her head was shaved. Um, in the first century in Greek culture, there was something called the Justinian Code. That's a primary resource that talks about some different punishments. If a woman was caught guilty of adultery, what would they do? They'd cut her hair, right? If you had somebody uh, back then who was maybe one of the heteri or the courtesans uh, of the, uh, the temples there, these t temple cult prostitutes, they would do what? They'd have short hair, right? It, it was a custom. Uh, maybe it was someone who was a slave woman, had what kind of hair? Guess what? Short hair in that culture, right? And so he says, look, if this Christian woman is not going to cover her head, which is a cultural custom, if she thinks she's going to be rebellious and throw that off, then she's doing what? She's dishonoring the man who's her, her uh, spiritual head. In a sense, she's also dishonoring who? God, because she's being seen as rebellious, right? Verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. So verse 7. Man indeed ought not to cover his head, because it's a symbol of submission. It's odd in that culture, right? He should not cover his head. He's the image and glory of God. That word glory, doxa, um, uh, Gordon Fee, I think it was, said trying to define that word in the New Testament is like trying to pick up mercury with your fingers, right? Now, I don't know if he did play with mercury as a kid. I don't like playing mercury, right? But he's trying to pick it up with his finger. What's he trying to say? It's hard to get a hold of, right? It's like maybe trying to grasp at the wind. So what he's saying is this word has a lot of different meanings in different contexts. What's likely the meaning here? Let's read it one more time. Verse 7, a man indeed ought not to cover his head, his physical head, since he is the image and glory of God. Uh, look back, what does this word glory mean in context? Go back to 1031. This is my take on it. 1031, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. I think that's saying whatever you do, do everything in the way that honors God, right? Honor. So I think that's possibly what that means in this, in this verse here. 
For a man ought not indeed to cover his head since he's the image and he brings honor to God whenever he does that. The next section. Let's go ahead and pick up in uh, verse 8. Well, woman is the glory of man. Let's finish that. Okay, so woman is the glory of man. If it's talking about honor, if a woman is doing something that's honorable, then who is she honoring? Her husband, right? If you have a very modest woman, what does Proverbs 31 talk about? A godly woman is, is what? Valuable. More precious than jewels, right? More precious than rubies. So he's saying if you have a, a modest, uh, a respectful, an honorable woman, then she's bringing honor to her husband and also honor to who? To God. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. He's starting to talk about how men and women complement each other, right? What do you think that's an allusion to? Woman is from man. Genesis chapter 2, God opens up Adam and performs the first surgery, right? Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman from the man. Nor was man created, you know, sometimes you start reading and you end up going across the same line. So we're going to do that again. Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, do you remember what happened? What happened to Adam? He had all these animals paraded in front of him, and he said, I like that one, no. What did he say? He didn't see any that was, was suitable for him, right? He was lonely. And so God makes him a what? A helper. Once again, does someone being a helper make them of less value? Do you remember, what did, what did Jesus say in John 16? He had to leave so he could send who? The helper? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, his deity, is not worth as much as Jesus, right? Of course not. Once again, just because it's a subservient role or this idea of a helper does not mean that it has any less value. Verse 10. This is the good one. I've been trying to get to this one. Verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have, now I'm going to read my New King James at first, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now what we said earlier in my New King James I have a little very faint line through symbol of because it's in italics, right? So reading that again. For this reason, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. What does that word authority mean? All right. There's a lot more information in the manuscript, but there's a couple different takes on it. Uh, some people think that she should have the right or liberty over her head. So some people think maybe Paul is saying... Hey, look, if you go back and look at this word, uh, exosia, all the way back through 1 Corinthians, a lot of the uh, occasions, the instances, I have it written down, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 37, 8, 9, 9, 4, 9, 5, 9, 6, 9, 12, it's twice in that verse. It's always talking about what? A right or a liberty. So it seems like Paul is maybe trying to be persuasive. and say, You remember what Paul did with uh, Onesimus and Philemon? Remember what he said? He said to, uh, to Philemon, he said, I could command you, but I what? I choose to appeal to you. Right? What do you think he's saying? He's saying, I could tell you what to do, but I'd prefer that you do what? You make that decision yourself, right? Is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying, for this reason, the woman ought to have authority, liberty, right, to make her own decision on her head or over her head, is what some people think that, that could be translated, because of the angels? The other view would be this. For this reason, the woman ought to have authority or that symbol of authority, something showing she respects that order on her head because of the angels, right? Either one of those is, I guess, the possibility. You have to read the manuscript to find out which one I think is probably the best one. It's a good way to get you to read the manuscript, right? On account of the angels. Now, some of your translations may have a veil there, okay? Um, if you guys don't know what a textual variant is, you need to go watch Dave, uh, Dave's series on that, Has the Bible Been Corrupted? 
But some people, some translations, maybe the RSV, I don't really recall which one's offhand, but they have a veil instead of authority there, or a symbol of authority. Um, there's no real textual variant there. It just seems like there are some early patristic writers that, uh, that maybe wrote that. You remember, for, for hundreds of years, how were copies of manuscripts made? By hand, right? So if you were to look at a handwritten manuscript with a handwritten note at the top, it'd be a little bit harder to tell, right? You can look at my Bible, and you see all the printed, and then you see my handwriting. Oh, that's his note, right? So what happens when you have all this manuscript, the whole thing's handwritten? You say, well, I don't want to leave part of God's word out, right? So it's possible that that idea of a veil was a gloss. It got added in, okay? So authority uh, is, seems to be the one that, um, that is the accurate reading, okay? So what does it mean because of the angels? All right. There's a lot of uh, early writers that had a lot of different ideas on this, and if you start to look into this topic, you'll find a lot of different thoughts. Uh, Ambrosiaster thought it was priests or bishops, because you guys know what the word angel, uh, what's the word really mean? It starts with an M and ends in Essinger. Messenger, right? Angels are messengers, okay? So, Ambrosiaster thought, is it priests or bishops? She needs to have this, this symbol of authority on her head because maybe priests or bishops are coming from other areas, and I don't personally think that that's what it is, but that's one idea. Um, you had one that seems to show a lot in intertestamental writings, Tertullian, uh, Josephus, and Philo, where he thought it was these fallen, lusting angels, right? He thought that these fallen, lusting angels, that's why they need to have this, this covering on their head, um, Personally, just very quickly, I'm not sure that I would go with that right now. Like I said, I reserve the right to change my mind at some point in time. I've changed it before, and I'll probably change it again on some doctrinal topic. But in this case, think about this. Why is it just like this in Corinth, right? Pay attention to Denny's lesson. If this was because of fallen angels everywhere, then it seems like this would be a custom that you'd see uh, everywhere. The next one, uh, guardian angels, Theodoret. August, Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say it. He said, holy angels that are present and participate in worship. Now, I don't know about the participate. Now, I don't know everything, believe it or not. So maybe there is some sense that we haven't been made aware of by God. But I do think it's interesting. Go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. Tell me what you think this means. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. What's that mean? We've been made a spectacle to angels and to men? It seems to say that what angels are what's aware of, going, of what's going on, right? This is a quote that uh, A.T. Robertson uh, said in, in one of his uh, commentaries. Uh, he says basically that the angels would be shocked at the conduct of women since angels themselves veil their faces before Jehovah. He's likely referencing Isaiah 6 too. He's saying the angels are going to veil their faces Therefore, they might be shocked if these women wouldn't veil their faces, right? But Kevin Moore, who wrote a great book, uh, his dissertation, I think it was for maybe his master's at Freed, is actually on the Apologetics Press website uh, if you want that. And I've got the book with me if you want to see it. He said this, Angels have freedom of choice to remain in their proper spheres, and when they do, God is glorified. So angels have free will, right? 2 Peter 2, 4, angels sin and were cast down. Job 4, 8 says that God uh, basically holds error against his angels, right? So angels have a choice. And so maybe it's this idea that the angels are looking down at these people who are redeemed, the, the crowning creation of God, and they're doing what? They're being rebellious towards uh, his order. So once you get past verse 10, for time's sake, uh, we're going to start moving uh, a little more quickly, if you, if you thought that was even possible. Um, go to verse 10. We're going to start moving through some, uh, some verses and make our way towards the end and try to get some application uh, in. 
Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. So once again, just like he talks about earlier, those allusions to Genesis, man and women are what? Mutually beneficial. They're symbiotic. They're made to, to complement each other and go perfectly together. Verse 12, for as woman came from man, woman came from his rib, even so man also comes through woman. Motherhood, right? Every man that's alive on the face of the earth had a what? Had a mother. Came from her. But all things are from God. Verse 13, judge among yourselves. Now this is, in one sense, the only imperative in this section. There's a few in verses 5 and 6. I think there's two, but they're sort of more hypothetical situations. And so what Paul seems to be saying is he seems to be saying, hey, I want you guys to judge among yourselves and make this call. It's kind of like Philemon where he says, you know, I know what I want you to do. I want you to make the decision, right? It's this idea of Christians, we're supposed to be submissive to what God wants, right? Is it good for God if a woman is just a robot that has to do what he tells her to do? No. He wants you to make that choice on your own to obey God's order, to obey the things in your culture that are seen as modest so that you're bringing honor to him. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's already explained that it would be not, and they would know their culture. Does not even nature itself teach you if a man has long hair? It's a dishonor. That word nature, phusis, um, two different meanings it could have. One is the, the, basically the, the natural order of things, the way you were born. Or another one that Thayer talks about uh, is a long-standing practice that's become habit. If I said Joe's a drunk, was Joe born a drunk? No, but by this continual practice, Joe has become into this lifestyle of being a drunk, right? Now, I'd say that, uh, four minutes, um, I'd say this, check out the manuscript. There's a lot of Old Testament examples of men who had what? Long hair in the Old Testament, right? Doesn't seem, at least to me, that that was, that was dishonorable. Um, and so it seems to me that this word nature here is talking about their culture, okay? Does not even your culture itself, nature yourself, teach that if a man has long hair, uh, it, is a, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And that's a different Greek word than the covering earlier, and Denny will probably talk about that. So he's saying, look, in your culture, you know that in your culture, Greek, Roman, and Jewish, first century, men had what kind of hair? Short. And women had what kind of hair? Long. He says, you know this. I want you to make this, this judgment call. Verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. Now, somebody out there might have a translation that says no other custom. Okay, You can look in the manuscript, but that word there, translated such in the New King James, uh, that word is nowhere else in the New Testament ever translated as other. There's about seven Greek words for other, and uh, the Holy Spirit didn't use one there. So it seems like it should be saying, look, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So he's saying, look, if anyone wants to argue about this, guess what the other churches don't have? They don't have this custom. It seems to be pointing to something cultural in the first century that was in Corinth. Now, principle behind the issue. All right, three minutes. We're going to move quick. In Corinth, women praying and prophesying with an uncovered head was a sign of disrespect to the man, right? Just like if a man had his head covered, it was a disrespect to his physical or his spiritual head, who? Christ and God. This was not a universal worldwide custom for all churches. The New Testament writers frequently enjoined cultural uh, customs to Christians. Uh, Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ, uh, they salute you, uh, greet one another with a holy what? I'm glad that that's not something that's enjoined in all cultures for all time, right? I love y'all, but there's a lot I don't want anybody kissing me, okay? Except my wife and my little girl, right? 
So I'm glad. But the New Testament writers did enjoin some of those customs. They were already a custom in the day, and they said, okay, we're going to take that, and we're going to keep it, because to change it and make it too weird would look weird to the rest of the world. Okay? The purpose was to teach the principle of modesty, and it was not enjoining a cultural, uh, a cultural custom uh, for all time. How would this apply to us today? We can still send messages to others based on our dress and modesty, right? Can we not? Right? If a woman loves and respects her husband, then she's not going to come in in some seductive outfit that makes all the guys check her out, right? Because she has respect for her husband. In the same way, guys, you need to, that, that applies to you too, right? Now, if you're, if you're a good-looking guy, then you might have to work harder, okay? But what I'm saying is we as men need to be doing the exact same thing, which is making sure the way that we act, the way we dress, the way we live doesn't convey a message that would be seen as rebellious in our culture. And you can show respect or disrespect for God's order by the way that you do that. We need to be perceptive uh, to how we appear uh, to others. Let me just use one last illustration, all right? Let's say that uh, I got off the airplane in Denver, and I walk off, and I see this really seductive woman, and she's carrying a big red bag, right? Let's say a red suitcase, and I think she's put some clothes on. So I start walking down, and I start seeing all these women dressed seductively, and they all got red suitcases, right? I'm starting to think, what in the world? So I get over here, and, and, and I walk over, and I say, Denny, man, what's, what's the deal? It's the airport, and all these women had red suitcases? Oh, in Denver, if you got a red suitcase, you know what that means? That means you're looking for some bad, you're, you're trying to elicit something, your, your solicitation, right? And I say, oh, so in Denver, that's a local cultural custom that a red suitcase is something I want to stay away from, right? Now, let's say I walk into the auditorium here, and I see lots of people, and I see this woman who's got a red suitcase, right? I'm immediately going to do what? Think, oh, right? Now, she may have no idea. Is there anything inherently sinful about having a red suitcase? Absolutely not. But if you're a Christian and you're aware of your surroundings, what do you not want to have in Denver if you're a Christian? A red suitcase. Now I fly back to Memphis and I get off the airport and I see a red suitcase. It's different, right? It might be. That's, I think, the issue that Paul is trying to get at. He's saying in Corinth, this is something that local cultural custom has been enjoined and you need to not, you need to stay away from that to show your respect for God's order. So let's make sure not to use our liberty to become a stumbling block for others. Concluding thoughts, our arrogance can destroy unity. The cure for arrogance is humility. And whenever we're humble and we obey what God says and we're willing to do things that maybe might not be inherently morally sinful and wrong, but we're willing to do those, then we can help other people, not become a stumbling block for them, and we can pay respect to God's divine order. Thank you so much for your attention.